0: The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches.
1: Hello, my name's Lionel Burney and I am with Daniel Freave. Hello, Daniel.
2: Hello, Lionel. Lionel, where's Richie?
1: Where is Richie? Richard Moore is having a well-earned break after completing the double. He's done the the Giro and the Tour. Well, as have you, Daniel, of course. You've done the Giro and the Tour um, one for the podcast, one for ITV. And the Dauphiné. Uh, so Richard's having a week or two off. And the Dauphiné, of and course. The Dauphiné. Yeah. And the And
2: ho- a holiday in between that was more like an altitude training camp.
1: <laughs> and where are you now? I am Back in base. Berlin. Nice. Well, I'm in, I'm in Not Watford, as is customary. I've spent a lot of time here in the last 15 months or so. I'm actually in my last day of quarantine, having been at the Tour de France briefly. I've had to quarantine at home for 10 days uh, it's felt like a a sort of indoor stage race i don't know some kind of track world championships that's just uh, gone on and on um looking forward to being released tomorrow in while i
2: unleashed that <laughs> uh, that bike poised above your head i can see um you are you're gonna be you're going to be unleashed on the lanes of not Watford. I am.
1: Yeah, it's hanging on the wall behind me. I shall be going out to do my two-hour flat loop tomorrow morning as I escape from quarantine. Uh, while I've been in quarantine, heart
2: rate, heart rate zone one,
1: <laughs> if I'm lucky. I mean, zone zone naught is my default. Um, so if we can get it up to zone one, that would be that would be progress. <laughs> yeah, while I've been in quarantine, I've had more negative tests than Lance Armstrong. Um, so, oh. oh. <laughs> So I've been waiting for that one. Um, But here we are. The Tour de France has finished. Uh, We're looking ahead to the Olympic Games, which kick off, we hope, at the weekend. Uh, There's a little bit of uncertainty about that. There were some rumours yesterday that the... Olympics in Tokyo might be cancelled at extremely short notice, but I think uh, the the officials have kind of rode back from that position a little bit and they're, they're pressing on. So the road races will be at the weekend. But in this episode, we'll mostly look back at the Tour de France and hear Daniel, your reflections of the tour. You were obviously there for the full three weeks for television, seeing a very different side of the race to Um, those of us working for the podcast and certainly in my case spending uh, two-thirds of the race watching at home on television seeing uh, a side of the race that I'm not all that familiar with you see a lot more of the cycling when you're at home the only downside is that every afternoon at sort of two o'clock I'd stroll outside expecting a big trestle table to be set up with some salami and some pate and salads and and uh, a bit of local wine nothing had to make my own lunch for two and a half weeks absolutely extraordinary if,
2: if, you dis- if, you're, if you're describing what would have been the press buffet that's not re- that realistic I'm not sure I've ever seen Trestle Tables at uh, a um, press buffet um, but yeah the armchair tour um, how did you find it generally
1: uh, it was interesting yeah you see I said this in uh, an episode when I was out in France Richard asked the same question and, and, and my impression was that when you're at home you see a much more complete but two-dimensional picture of the race. And then when you're there, there's so much you don't know has gone on, and yet you have a much more vivid, richer, three-dimensional impression. And and I suppose parachuting in after what was an extraordinary opening nine days. I mean, I don't know what you thought, Daniel, but I thought it was the most uh, thrilling opening week to the Tour that I can remember, certainly in all the years I've been covering the race and, and even watching the race. You know, I couldn't remember a Tour when there was just so much action going on in, in each of those opening nine days. Of course, I arrived and everything just, um, you know, settled into a bit of a <laughs> funk. Certainly, as far as the GC was concerned, the race was more or less done and dusted with Tadej Pogachar roughly a week and a half ahead it's of everyone bit, else. It kind of set,
2: set, settled in for a sort of post-lunch <laughs> kind of did. Um, languid sort of siesta it did really
1: it? but the the second half of the race did have some uh, good stories Mark Cavendish who we'll talk about in the third part of this episode equaling Eddie Merckx's record of 34 stage wins Wout van Art, the extraordinary Wout van Aert winning the stage that went over Mont Ventoux twice and then then a time trial and then on the Champs Elysees I mean uh, we'll talk a little bit about that because Jumbo Visma really rescued their tour with a very fine second half didn't they they were down to four riders but uh, you know a handful of stage wins when you add in Sepkus as well in andorra um so but the, but it was it was one for the purists i think the second half wasn't it there was some interest and intrigue but uh, my overall impression of the gc race was that after the first rest day there were so many riders in that top 10 who had you know a, a they had a lot to lose, didn't they? They had basically a career-defining result in the palm of their hands, and they didn't want to risk that, you know, finishing, whether it be on the podium, as in the case of Vingegaard or, you know, Ben O'Connor in fourth, but also lower down the top ten, you know, those sixth, seventh, eighth places were extremely valuable to um, the riders in those positions, and Pogachar was out of sight, and so it did mean that the, the GC race itself was, um, well, it, it was... It was sedate, really, wasn't it? There was a a glimmer of of Pog faltering slightly on Mont Ventoux, but uh, really no more than that. But we'll talk about the Tour. Anyway, I've got a little bit of news first from the world of cycling, because everything carries on after the Tour. Uh, First up, we have got the Tour de Wallonie in Belgium, which got underway yesterday. And Dylan Groenewegen won his first race since his comeback earlier this season, remember he was suspended for his part in that crash with Fabio Jakobsen at the Tour of Poland last year and when he came back to racing at the Giro uh, he had quite a quiet race and pulled out midway through, his best result was a fourth place, he had another fourth place at the Tour of Belgium last month but this is his first win uh, since his comeback, Uh, he beat Hugo Hofstetter of Israel Startup Nation across the line there that race continues until the weekend they've also been racing on sardinia the island of sardinia where the giro started a few years ago and it was really the ackerman and ulissi show pascal ackerman won three stages for Bora and Hans- hansgrohe and diego ulissi of uae won the other two and the very overall. curious
2: very curious courses there napalm i happened to have a look at the profiles the other day and all the stages pretty much looked um Well, very alike they finished in in ports and there was as you know Sardinia is quite a mountainous island there were mountains in the middle of stages and yeah flat finishes to all of them hence it's probably no surprise that the results were pretty similar in every stage I mean
1: there are a lot of ports on Sardinia it is an island I mean you know occupational hazard for islands that isn't it Um, the routes for the Tour of Britain and Women's Tour have been confirmed by the organisers the Tour of Britain will start with a stage from Penzance to Bodmin in Cornwall on September the 5th. Uh, We knew a fair bit about the route um, already, but it's been confirmed where the two stages in Wales will go from. There'll be a team time trial in Carmarthenshire in South Wales, followed by a finish in Landudno in North Wales. Then it's on to Warrington, Gateshead, Edinburgh and Aberdeen. And the six-day women's tour starts in Bicester on October the 4th with a stage to Banbury. Then it's on to Walsall. There'll be an individual time trial at Atherston. Then there are three finishes in Essex and Suffolk, uh, Southend, Clacton and Felixstowe. So um, two big British races coming up in the next few months, all being well, with the usual caveats applying, of course. The Olympic Games are underway. There was some football this morning. Um, The opening ceremony is on Friday and the cycling starts at the weekend, the men's road race is on saturday you have to be up pretty early in the morning to watch it all if you're in the uk that is because uh, it kicks off in the early hours the women's road race is on sunday the, the cross-country mountain biking is on monday with uh, matthew van der Poel going up against tom pidcock one of the most anticipated clashes in the cycling um of any discipline really to see those two go head to head and then the road time trials are next wednesday and we will talk about the olympic racing in the next edition of the podcast This is just a very quick stop press to say that after we finish recording, the second stage of the Tour de Wallonie was won by Fabio Jakobsen, who is the rider who came off worst in that crash with Dylan Groenewegen at the Tour of Poland last year. He had to have several surgeries, and it's been a long road back to the top for him. He did start racing earlier in the season, back in April at the Tour of Turkey but this was his first race win since that incident in Poland last year and he got across the line in the sprint finish on the motor racing circuit in Zolda. The stage was moved from the original course because that original course was so badly affected by the flooding that Belgium has uh, experienced in the past week or so. So Jakobsen back to winning ways and if all goes well he will be on the start line at the Vuelta next month.
0: Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success.
1: Thank you very much to Super Sapiens who supported the cycling podcast throughout the Tour de France. Uh, they came on board earlier this year and, uh, well, their sponsorship is ongoing. We've been running a competition for people to win a three-month supply of the Abbott LibreSense sensors, which uh, give the Super Sapiens app continuous glucose monitoring. And uh, people have been sending in their entries. Thank you very much to everyone who has entered. Um, We'll listen to one of the entries now. Basically, the idea is give us a 60-second pitch in audio. Uh, Why should you win a three-month supply of the sensors and access to the Super Sapiens app to monitor your blood glucose levels? Let's hear one of the entries now.
0: Hi Cycling Podcast, I would like to enter the Super Sapiens competition on behalf of my husband Ed, as it would make a great 40th birthday present for him. Ed is an anaesthetist and he has spent the last year over the pandemic looking after COVID patients in ITU, as well as taking patients to theatre and generally keeping the NHS running. His main job is optimising patients' health before they have major surgery, particularly cancer patients and people with diabetes. He has a passion for health optimisation and is fascinated about the potential of techniques such as intermittent fasting and different forms of exercise to improve the health and longevity of the patients he sees and the general population. He is also an avid cyclist. Last week he read the Fred Witten route and he has recently discovered the joys of gravel riding. I think that Super Sapiens would give him a great personal insight into the effects of fasting and exercise on his own physiology and I also feel that this will be a fantastic reward for all the hard work he has put in during the pandemic.
1: To find out more about Super Sapiens, go to the Super Sapiens website. It's supersapiens.com. Uh, Daniel, how were your blood sugar levels through the Tour de France? Did you feel that you. I have
2: no idea. Well. I've, n- I've no idea. Um, you, how was it? Are you? Is this a question about French cuisine? Are you baiting me <laughs> for a rant about French cuisine?
1: Um, what were your cuisine no, highlights the... and lowlights? Just, just quickly.
2: Well, there were there were some there were some green shoots. There were some signs of progress um, on the gastronomic front in France. Um, I had one or two vegetables at some point. At, I can't remember which point during the tour, but gastronomic high points in general. Um, I did have a in your absence Lionel because I oh no you were in Carcassonne mm. you were in Carcassonne weren't you you flew in um, especially for the Castellet stage but I did have Castellet had some very good wine a lot of um, a lot of sort of southern Rhone Valleys or Corbiere kind of um, that's generally my sort of favoured French wines in France or sort of Longloch um, Rhone Valley nice and spicy um, which was enjoyable, but I can't really particularly remember other highlights. As always, there were a lot of salad de chevre short, goat's cheese salads and bavettes, you know, a lot of beef. Um, yeah, and now I'm on uh, very much on a detox, certainly from beef and dairy products. In fact, so much so that I I no longer consume meat or dairy products or try not to outside the grand tours. We have so much.
1: Wow. So you, you go kind of uh, vegan? Between the races, do you pretty yeah, much not, not a bad pretty idea? Much. The detox is a good idea. Uh, what was the cassoulet like? Was it uh, was it a good one?
2: It it was good, but I'm no connoisseur uh, like you, Lionel. Um, I tend to like it when there's not too much. I, I always forget on the different iterations of cassoulet, there is always duck fat, isn't there? Mm. There is always a big slab. You tend to only get to sort of one slab of duck f- fat per. Serving is that right? Do they do that? Well, on purpose? I don't know whether
1: the duck fat is a deli- it's a sort of a- an occupational hazard of the of the cassoulet because it's kind of in there, okay? Uh, it cuts it falls off okay. the duck legs. Um, but yeah, it's a combination of things, isn't it? It's a sort of Toulouse sausage, there might be um, some, some pork in there, uh, duck, sometimes goose, beans. I mean, there's all sorts of controversy about you know whether you put breadcrumbs on the top or not. There's this kind of competition between... Breadcrumbs?
2: I've never had... I don't think I've ever had one with breadcrumbs uh, on. I've,
1: I have done in Toulouse and, and probably in Foix as well. But the three the three hot spots are Carcassonne, Foix and Toulouse and they all have their own uh, take on it. And as you know, Daniel, I'm very relaxed about these things. If you, if you like breadcrumbs on the top, I have breadcrumbs on the top I didn't actually have any cassoulet this tour because uh, one of the things that might fit into your category of green shoots when it comes to French cuisine is I just noticed and maybe it's because I've not been outside the UK so much in fact only been outside the UK to go to last year's tour since the start of the pandemic so sort of um, everything felt sort of more noticeable there's sort of little changes to things um, but I noticed lots of little French restaurants are embracing a sort of French version of tapas um you know eclectic mixes of very well done nice delicate little dishes um the sorts of things you'd expect from the French anyway so there are there are a lot of uh, animal products involved but um you know in terms of the size of portions and the, the presentation kind of gone away from the sort of the ubiquitous brown sauce that i know daniel you you perhaps uh, would be one of the things you mm, i enjoy think about um, french cuisine
2: yeah i think our gastronomic experiences our itineraries were probably quite different yeah. Lionel. well i think they're probably
1: we're blessed with francois thomaso who of course knows uh, what he's looking for when it comes to uh, when it comes to the restaurant i
2: think your your budget might have been slightly different from ours as well oh really higher or lower that's interesting I think slightly
1: higher anyway Anyway. we should get on to to the (laughs) race we should indeed yes well um, I gave my kind of broad brushstroke impressions of the tour in the first part Daniel you were there from start to finish completed the breast parry Um, what did you make of the race Uh, you you were kind of nodding along when I said the first week was the, the best first week that we can remember I don't think that's in much dispute but overall what were your takeaways from the tour I mean, I, I so
2: I gave it three wine glasses out of five, and that was I was slightly swayed, I must say, by a, a more downbeat consensus. I was inclined, and I think if if Mark Cavendish had won on the Champs Elysees, I would have given it four out of five, um, because I just thought that was one of the great storylines that we've seen in the last ten, fifteen, twenty years, if not longer. I actually think it ranks. Among the greatest sporting comebacks um, alongside Tiger Woods winning the 2019 Masters. So in some respects, I think it was even unlikelier and more impressive, more shocking, um, more heartrending in some respects than than Tiger Woods' comeback. But generally speaking, Lionel, I thought it was a really good tour. And I've, I've talked a lot about this in the last year or so. And, you know, the Giro, I was maybe a bit down on the Giro for this reason I talked a lot about the sort of it was almost the sort of stratified nature of the different things going on at the Giro so I felt that the 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 general classification battle and the stage versus the the battle for the stage stages every day was kind of they were sort of um, detached from each other divested from each other and likewise with the mountains jersey the points competition and you know I, I like it when in Grand Tours the, the various different narratives are to a certain extent sort of interlaced and they relate to each other and I really thought that was the case at the Tour de France I thought that the 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 battle for the break every day it always impinged in some way on what was going on with the general classification because for example there was this there was this sort of undercurrent of chat about UAE and how strong they were or they weren't and their ability or inability to control the early the early phases of stages um that that was very much related to you know who was going to win the stage what kind of break was going to go away and whether they that team was going to fall apart in the final week for example and whether that was going to leave Pogacar exposed and you know a a real really positive development over the last few years has been also the green jersey competition and the points jersey competitions generally in grand tours and how they have had an impact on stages, how stages are ridden. And and that was the case, you know, the first 50, hundred kilometers of even mountain stages were, um, to a certain extent dictated, defined by what was happening in the green Jersey competition with Matthews and Cobrelli trying to, you know, steal points off Cavendish. And, and I, I don't think there were many stages, maybe stage 19 when, um, Cavendish and De quick Quickstep sort of renounced, decided that they weren't going to compete. But there weren't that many stages where a break was allowed to go. And as I said, it didn't in somehow it didn't somehow um, impact the, our, the broader narrative of the GC and 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 what was going on there.
1: Yeah, I certainly think there's, there's, there was no such thing as a soft break in this tour, was there? And I think that's reflected by how. Uh, well, it was slim pickings for the smaller teams, wasn't it? Really, I mean, the the caliber of riders that won the stages and got into the breaks uh, was really exceptional. I mean, and and also, well, we had a, a question from a listener, Crispin O'Brien, who asked why so many. I think all of the breakaway stages were won solo, um, and and it's something that I guess I hadn't really kind of noticed. But when you think back to uh, the number of riders that were in strong breaks to start with and then clipped away from those strong breaks to win the stage on their own, uh, you know, um, Mohoric, um, O'Connor, Molema Kus, Conrad, um, you know, Van Aert over the vontu over a couple of times as well. I mean, that's quite a phenomenon really. There was no, uh, there was nothing that kind of, you know, went to the line and got sorted out on the line, was there? It was either sprint or breakaway by a solo rider.
2: Yeah, and I, I asked a few guys about that. A few of the guys who had figured in the breaks, and they were a bit of a loss to explain. Um, I think what did happen in a few cases was that there were a lot of fast guys in those breaks, and um, they were all sort of afraid of each other, and they watched each other, and they became well, they were sort of unwilling to chase when someone did um, ditch strike out from a, a long way from the finish line. But I think there was also a certain, there was a kind of emulation effect that took hold. A, a couple of the guys who did win from those breaks mentioned the fact that they had thought of or been influenced by the the earlier stages when a solo breakaway has succeeded from a long way out. So I think Conrad mentioned the fact that Mollimer had attacked from a long way out and he'd sort of surprised um, people. And I think Niels Pollitt as well um, mentioned mentioned that or uh, that was earlier in the race but he also talked about um having seen it happen in another stage so yeah that was an interesting development and like you said the the quality of of the winners the quality of the the breakaways themselves they were stacked with talent and we always say this about the Tour de France um, being different from the other Grand Tours in the sheer quality of the the field and how you know how well prepared, how well trained everyone is for the tour. And and that was obvious, wasn't it? I mean, the there the were there were few opportunities for the break to go and survive. But the the riders in the field whose only chance w- was going to be in a breakaway, they were ready on those days and they were determined and, you know, the guys who were informed, the polits, the Molomars, the comrades, um, you know, they, they made the most of those sparse opportunities.
1: Yeah, I suppose that's one of the things I picked up from being able to watch so many of the stages from start to finish was that it, it, it wasn't as if the um, that those breaks went away with strong riders in it by kind of accident. You know, that was strong riders, you know, on, on some occasions taking a long time before a move went away. Um, But it did mean, um, you know, uh, B&B Hotels, uh, Frank Bonamore, perhaps the the exception there, um, you know, and one or two of their other riders did get him to breaks. But I can remember even only two, three years ago, you know, the the pattern of tour stages, particularly um, in the first week and and, and, uh, the transitional stages, you would have expected... um, Breaks of sort of two, three, four riders from the wildcard teams, and you know perhaps teams that haven't won stages to just be allowed to go and uh, just you know eat up the kilometres, and then and then you know come back and and uh, the, the the big guys then fight out the finish. And we didn't really see that at all throughout the tour. Um, it was it was really interesting, uh, just a sort of different dial of racing. And certainly after the first nine days, I, I was sort of thinking about what I thought about those first nine days, and I was going to say in the podcast that it felt like watching the, the Giro di Francia. You know, it was almost like the Giro that, that first week. A sense of um, almost lawlessness to it, really. Um, and, and that perhaps was down to the fact that UAE weren't that convincing. Um, and, you know, INEOS were, um, you know, were were, were strong... Um, But perhaps not in quite the right areas, you know, it was it was a really interesting um, way that the first weeks have unfolded There, there seemed to be a sense that, you know, perhaps Pogachar could could be could be rocked. But then, of course, you know, by that first rest day, he was what, five minutes up. And, um, you know, from from the point of view of that, that connection between the GC and the stage battle, it sort of shifted subtly, really, because there wasn't an awful lot of, of sort of big movement going on in um, you know from second to seventh. It was it was all kind of nip and tuck. Everyone was just sort of edging towards Paris, as I said before, sort of defending a, a, a very good result, rather than th- thinking that there was any, any point in putting it all on the line to try and um, shake Pogachar'. because, I mean, that was never going to happen. But I suppose you always think, well, perhaps something you know people were saying if Pogacar were to have a crash or you know have a really bad day suddenly the tour de france would be absolutely on fire there was about five riders within seconds of one another um but it, stage racing doesn't really work like that does it the, the current gc you know does dominate all it sets the pattern it sets the tone um and so yeah it was it was um it was in the stages uh, and seeing the way that those stages Um, played out. I particularly enjoyed Mollemer's win. I thought Conrad did to Molymer what Molymer had done to Conrad a few days earlier. Um, So there was a lot lot to enjoy. Um, But I suppose the outstanding finale was uh, Wout van Aert doing, for somebody of my generation, remembers Guido Bontempi, uh, the Italian rider, winning the final two stages of the 86 tour. Admittedly, one was a road stage and then the second one was a a stage on the Champs-Élysées. But I mean, Van Aert's, um, you know, the greatest all-rounder in the world at the moment and he's proved it in this Tour de France and I guess uh, he, was, he was kind of my man of the match, really, for the, for the whole three weeks. But should we talk about uh, the overall winner, Pogacar, and uh, the Ineos Challenge in part three?
3: Chute, uh, chute à l'arrière du
0: peloton. cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack, please.
1: That's Seb Piquet to remind us to tell you that this episode is sponsored by SumUp, SumUp provides the simplest and most affordable range of payment and financial tools. Now receiving a card reader is often a major milestone for new businesses because it means they can accept card payments directly from the public rather than having to say, oh I'm terribly sorry we only accept cash. Now it's not all that long ago that taking card payments was difficult and quite expensive and I know this from my own experience of trying to sell books at live events and even outside football grounds as I used to back in the day, you know that if you can only accept cash, customers are just streaming past and you're losing sales. But with a sum up device, which is no bigger than a smartphone, in fact, it's smaller than a smartphone, you can take contactless payments direct from uh, your customers. There's no contract, no hidden fees, just easy, flexible payments based on the volume of sales that you're making. So you're not locked in and uh, spending money on a service if you're not using it. SumUp offers affordable and simple payment tools for businesses which are just starting up or leveling up, going to the uh, next level. I also know from experience just how many small and even medium-sized businesses are using SumUp because even on my short trip to the Tour de France, uh, at least two, possibly three of the um, places where we stayed or had meals were using SumUp to take payments to create a world where small business owners can be successful doing what they love more than 3 million businesses today use SumUp to get paid so if you would like to find out more go to sumup.co.uk that's sumup.co.uk well Daniel the race was won by Tadej Pogacar for the second year in a row it couldn't couldn't have been a more different type of win to 2020 for him Um, took the yellow jersey at the end of the first week in really decisive fashion didn't he i mean it was uh it was uh, well what was it, it the, the ride to le grand where he put three minutes into all of the serious overall contenders was uh, well it was mercsissimo really wasn't it um was it yeah i mean i don't know that i was i oh, my, my chin was on the floor slightly watching him i just open that gap and, and and seeing how little of a response there was but two in a row now, and he's only about fourteen. So once he's finished school, he's going to be <laughs> absolutely unbeatable, isn't he? Um, well, he'll be, oh, if he, he does,
2: <laughs> if he if he does go on to win five, Lionel. Well, if he wins the next three, he'll, he'll still be twenty-five when uh, he reaches that milestone, which is you know the current high-water mark of tour victories. Uh, just to put that in context, Merckx was twenty-four when he won his first, Ancelotti twenty-three, Eno twenty-three in twenty-seven. And um, the controversial Lance Armstrong, who, of course, didn't win seven officially, was 27 when he didn't win his first.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the obvious question, isn't it? Uh, Are we into an era of invincibility for Pogacar? I mean... Um, the the thing that always springs to my mind is that two years ago we were asking the same question about Egan Bernal and he's obviously had some injury issues but um, the fact that the pair of them have won the two Grand Tours so far this season I mean (laughs) would Bernal have beaten Pogachar in this tour? Would Pogacar have beaten Bernal in the Giro a couple of months ago? Um, and, and where do they stand in relation to one another? It's, it's sort of reminds me a little bit of when we had the, the kind of the, the Fab Four of uh, Quintana, Nibali and the other two. And, and it was always about, you know, they're, they're doing their own thing, but they're not racing against one another. Uh, Froome was one. And who was the fourth of the, the Fab Four? Bardet? No. Bardet, no, no. I can't Gary remember. Uh, that just shows you what a confection of the media it was. That, But, you know, that's one of the things, isn't it? Until everyone goes toe-to-toe, it's very hard to, to draw comparisons. But where do we stand? Is this, is this the cusp of an era? Uh, or are we just making the same mistake that we perhaps made a couple of years ago in thinking that, that this guy is along and is going to uh, make the running for the foreseeable future?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I think the one we all remember is and we talked about this probably when Bernal won the tour was Jan Ulrich in 1997 and we remember this sort of flurry of of projections, predictions after that. People saying he would win five. Someone, I think it was Bernard, you know, um, said he'd win 10. Um, Ulrich, Ulrich didn't win another Tour de France um, after that and that's a sort of cautionary tale. I remember One sort of discordant voice in amongst all of that was Eusebio Unthue, who is now still, of course, the Movistar manager. And he said something along the lines of, well, it's no foregone conclusion that he will even win another one. It's way too early to talk about that. I think with Ulrich... um, one of the things or maybe the main thing that made people get so carried away was the margin of victory which was over seven minutes but that was a a very different era we did then see huge margins of victory because of the well the the amount of time trialing in races in tours you would always get two very long time trials of over 50 kilometers which really with hindsight um they were a big big mistake weren't they in terms of unbalancing the general classification we don't see that anymore there was more time trialing this year um but it didn't really although Pogachar won the first um time trial he still he still opened up most of that time so the over five minutes he won by yeah in the in the mountains um, but yeah on the likelihood of him now creating uh, some form of dynasty I mean in favour of that pointing that direction um, you know the fact that UAE will only get better we've talked about this before how over time the best rider um, if, if you, you get someone who is dominating the Tour de France over time automatically they will start to attract the most well the The best sponsor and in turn the best riders because that sponsor will be well the richest sponsor and they'll have more uh, money to spend on domestique. So UAE already there was a significant step forward this year. They weren't infallible but they were much better than they had been the previous year. Um, I I don't really see a way to pog proof the route um, because he was the best in overall. He was the best in time trials of the GC contenders um, and he was the best. He's certainly the best in the mountains. If anything, I think he was even in his general demeanour, and certainly the way he was in the media with us, and the way he carried himself, he was even more relaxed this year and more confident, rather than being more uptight and seeming that he was suffering um, under the burden of pressure. So again, I don't, I don't have any real concerns for him on that score. Um, he never seems like he's going to crash, which you know is is a miss. It's a misapprehension. It's a misguided. And point to make, because we know that often one well, most of the time crashing comes down to luck, but he carries himself well he he rides with such a sort of looseness and um, he 's so sort of supple and and agile in the peloton that he never looks like he 's going to crash, he seems to be sort of moving around the race on a magic carpet um, the, the, the The pressure factor I get the sense line i don 't know whether you agree with me, but I think. Being from Slovenia is a bit of a blessing because, you know, it's a country, as we've all heard, we all know now, it's a country of two million people. The media pressure there, um, the scrutiny, you could say it's a goldfish bowl, but I think it's still, um, it seems to me to be manageable. For example, in the mix zone at the Tour de France, there's, you know, there's one Slovenian team of, of journalists um, that I don't see a huge... Um, a huge contingent of Slovenian journalists in the press room, for example. It's nothing like what Jonas Vingergaard, maybe we'll talk about that later, what he's going to face and the, the level of scrutiny and coverage that there is in Denmark. So I think that it's, it's a very sort of well disposed public, a very sort of um, supportive public that Pogacar has in, in um, Slovenia. Also, some of the attention is deflected by Roglic because they, well, it's divided between Pogacar and Roglic. So I think that's in his favour. Um, he got better this year. He got slightly better than he was last year, just physically. I think. I mean, that's what his coaches say. And San Mian, um, his um, his coach at UAE, he said that he, you know, the most of his numbers were pretty much the same as the previous year, but he didn't, his lactate um, tolerance had had improved slightly, um, and and just generally, he still, I I think he still displays exhibits this kind of playful um again carefree attitude and demeanor and, and and he seems to seems to approach racing in in exactly the right way it's still pretty much a game for him he still loves racing you see that when he when he sprints at the end of stages that he doesn't need to win and I saw a bit of criticism or some misgivings about this, some concerns. I mean, um, do do I dare confess that I do actually listen to the controversial Lance Armstrong's podcast um, at times during the tour and when he won one of the stages in the mountains, they were were talking about this, that, you know, he needs, Need to be careful that, um, so as not to be seen as a this kind of all all more um, omnipotent sort of um, patron figure or cannibal type figure who's who's gobbling up every stage and um, you know this could cause him problems in the future. I don't I don't really I didn't really have any of those worries for him on this tour. Partly because I don't think he's he's riding for a team that people. Have that feeling about. I think it'd be very, very different if he was riding for Ineos. Um, but yeah, I think he, generally he's the, the attitude he, he races with. Um, as I say, this sort of. Um, th- th- this very kind sort of nonchalant, playful, kind of smiling um, demeanor that he brings to the race, and I think that's going to be a massive, a massive advantage. I think it's a, it's a real shield against some of the pressure he's going to face. So they're all they're all sort of ticks um, pointing towards in favour of the likelihood of him him establishing some kind of reign against the emergence of someone better. I mean, that can always happen. And I think, I don't know if you agree, Lionel, but the the way cycling is evolving and I think it's been a huge factor in the way cycling has evolved in the last few years that that this amazing feedback that the riders now get due to devices, due to, um, you know, whether it's Strava or training peaks or, um, you know, just SRM meters. Um, Dan Coyle, who we've spoken about, quite a lot in in the author we've spoken quite a lot about in the last couple of years and um, he's written written some excellent books one called talent code and the other one called range he talks about this this concept this idea of of kind feedback and and uh, or kind learning environments whereby if you're getting a lot of feedback um you know, accurate feedback so for example, data that's provided by power meters, then it becomes a lot easier to raise your level and I think you know the, one of the reasons why we've seen the level keep going up is that the riders have always got their own bar they know where they've been in the past and they can strive for that and they've also got they know exactly where for example Pogacar is and I think because of that you will see a more sort of dynamic landscape in professional cycling whereby you know you you might think a rider is going to dominate and then what happens well an 18 or a 19 or a 20 year old comes along and all of a sudden they're the top dog um so I I think that could definitely happen
1: yeah I certainly agree with you on the the idea of Pogacar as kind of a, a an almost playful rider. In that sense, he's got a lot in common with Wout van Aert and Matthew van der Poel. You know, people who are absolutely in command of the bike. They seem to be able to do anything on it. Uh you, you, The importance of not crashing, um, you know, cannot be understated really in the Tour. I mean, we saw that, you know, the, the direct comparison between Pogachar and Roglic. Roglic had a shocker of an opening week and, and looked really... Like a man who had quite a lot of pressure on his shoulders right from the off. I mean, he's got a very, very powerful team um, assembled behind him. I mean, I, during my very brief visit to the tour, I did have a chat with Dave Browsford over the the barrier at the buses uh, one day, and he was he was talking about you know how how Pogacar just floats through the peloton and and you know avoids trouble and you know there's an element of luck to that but you make your own luck with with physical strength and confidence and all of all of those other attributes and he contrasted that with uh, Roglic, who hadn't raced, of course, since liege Baston liege you know, a lot of time out of the peloton and then into the Tour de France. And it just brought to mind Mark Cavendish's uh, comments at the very start of the race about, you know, 20k into the first stage, thinking what on earth have I let myself in for here? The intensity of it, the speed of it, just, uh, the fighting for every position, even if you're in the sort of final third of the peloton. If you're, if you're there, you need to be further forward and keep, you know, just... just uh, you know stuck in that washing machine effect of of the Tour de France peloton with all of the nerves and the and the scrutiny and the expectation and and Brailsford said that the, the INEOS riders from the right from the start said you know Roglic doesn't look comfortable uh and and it was inevitable they thought that he would he would crash and so it came to pass and I suppose yeah Pogacar the the only pressure really that he came under during the race on the road was um on that second ascent of Mont Ventoux, where there was a glimmer, a glimmer that he couldn't hold the wheel, but he didn't need to hold the wheel either. That was the, that was the most crucial thing about it. And and you mentioned the scrutiny and the 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 the, the sort of the 60 watt light bulb of the Slovenia, um, Slovenia's interest in the Tour de France uh, compared to I don't know some kind of uh, what would it be? Some full beam from the Danes um, for Vingagore and others. But what about the, the the sort of the whispers and rumours and 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 the slight whiff around Slovenia and cycling that um, you know as a result of, I guess the Adalas investigation from a few years ago, the issues with the Bahrain Victorious team, which is is another team with uh, a, a Slovenian. Um, heartbeat that you know the fact that Milan Erzen is the boss of that team and has been closely watched by the UCI certainly um, over the last few years uh, Mohoric's a uh, victory celebration which you can interpret however you wish but the sort of zip the lips after um, after the, the team hotel had been visited by the gendarme you know there was some some uncomfortable echoes there and um, it's, it's inevitable, isn't it? The yellow jersey in the Tour gets these questions. Can we believe in you? And we haven't seen a performance as dominant as that for a number of years. I mean, what were your take? What was your take on that, Daniel, from being on the ground and seeing him, particularly in the final week as those, those questions certainly out here in the wider world were swirling around?
2: Well, I think from his point of view, it only becomes a problem if he's got something to something to hide. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of noise... Around, if we take someone like Armstrong, um, you could argue that that the noise around him became a problem for for him in it in itself. But that noise was only created because you know there was something sinister going on. If there's nothing sinister going on, then you know over time, um, the, the 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 power of those rumors and that innuendo, that conjecture, it, it can only be is going to be limited. I think, and it it, it doesn't have enough force to to derail um you know whatever he's going to achieve in his career, but as far as what is going on i mean we've said it so many times over the last couple of years it's really very difficult to know i'm i'm slightly um, i'm I'm obviously slightly concerned disturbed when I see the the sort of n- the level of Suspicion, speculation coming from certain quarters. You know, certain people absolutely convinced that cycling is in the throes of, uh, or, 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 is is on the brink of a of some other kind of plague that it experienced, like the one it experienced in the nineties with EPO. Um, but there's very little specific evidence of that, um, apart from the performances themselves. Um, You know, if one was to find out that um, that there there was a rider in the top 10 or top 20 in the tour that was, you know, using a new product, a new illegal product, um, which had the potential to, you know transform someone's performances then we would feel suddenly very different about Pogacar's performances with that would cast a certain shadow over Pogacar's performances but you know we're in this situation where there's been no positive test or no major rider has tested positive for a very long time there's been no investigation that's really turned up anything um, substantial anything um, really concerning for a long time the Quintana investigation um, that was started last year seems to have gone nowhere um, we 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 await to see if anything incriminating was found and um, when the police searched Bahrain Victorious the other day so um, it's all it's all very opaque and and then you know you get stories like the one in the Swiss newspaper Le Temps about mm, rumors of mechanical doping unnamed sources in the peloton which you know I don't know how you feel about that Lionel but I'm not I'm particularly alarmed by those um, at this point because, to be frank, I consider them pretty um, implausible. Um, I might be might be wrong, but um, based on what I hear from riders and, or certainly the riders I speak to, um, I, I don't think that the, the you know the the threat that we we, we thought was looming a few years ago of motor doping being the next frontier in cheating and cycling. I don't really think that that has, that has materialized. That's my sense, but just, just to complete the, the list, Lionel, um, moving on from that, to complete the list of, of things that could possibly work against Pogaccio over the next few years. And, and, you know, what might prevent him from establishing this kind of dominion in the Tour de France. Um Vingegaard, just as an individual, I mean, and once he was unshackled from Roglic, obviously he spent the first week of the race still thinking that, you know, he was there as a a domestique for Roglic. Once he was unshackled, he pretty much matched Pogacar. Um, Again, I don't envy the the attention that he's going to be subject to in Denmark. I mean, at the tour, working for ITV, I... i'm in the mix zone alongside tv2 which is the the danish broadcaster at the tour de france and i'm just constantly baffled i was i'm open-mouthed sometimes at the level of their coverage and uh, the level of their enthusiasm for cycling it's second to no one in the world second to not even you know you think what is the the country with the strongest cycling culture well you would say probably belgium well the danes um the danes come in with even heavier artillery at the Tour de France you know three or four reporting crews live reports from seven in the morning and um and don't forget next year the tour is starting Copenhagen which um is going to be a, a huge celebration for, of cycling in that country but for Jonas Vingegaard, it might be pretty onerous just talking about next year um I think another thing and this comes back to something I said earlier Pogacar's story but also Bernal's over the last couple of years they demonstrate there's no longer this sort of mandatory two or three year apprenticeship in for budding stars in professional cycling so there is a real possibility that someone we could not even know about now um, could emerge in the next two or three years and and uh, dethrone him unseat Pogacar Um, and and the other the other thing I would say is that so far he's he's not really faced apart from that kind of low murmur of 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 doping rumors or suspicion or suggestion, Pogas has not really faced any massive adversity so far, um, and we don't really know how he will cope with that and that's always a bit of a, a question mark. but so far he's passed every test with flying colors. I mean, you know, just thinking back to what he has achieved so far in his career um, and and the comparison with Bernal well, relatively early in Bernal's uh, ascent. Um, He he was already, there were already a couple of occasions where he was, he he looked um, weaker or he was, um, he was challenged um, in, you know, there were times when he was dropped in mountain stages or he had bad days where he lost time. Pogacar, probably the worst day he's ever had in a Grand Tour in the mountains was that day on Mont Ventoux and he was still the second best climber in the race. So, you know, that is a, 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 a sort of warning sign to anyone who has aspirations to beat him over the next few years.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, very few chinks in the armour for Pogachar that we've we've seen in any race so far. Um, well, I said we were going to talk about Team Ineos in this part. We'll shunt that into the final part uh, where we'll also talk about Mark Cavendish's bid to... Uh, overtake Eddie Merckx's record of stage wins but before that let's uh, just hear the final diary entries from Connor Swift who rode the tour for Archaea Samsic and kept an audio diary for us which uh, went out as part of our Kilometre Zero series Uh, here's a couple of final entries from Connor wrapping up his Tour de France
3: quick post stage recap so uh, yeah Good job. I wanged on the aero arrow uh, overshoes because uh, I ended up spending a bit of time on the front. Uh, the breakaway established. I think there was like six or seven guys. Uh, none of them a threat to the KOM competition. Uh, but leading into the the base of the first climb of the day, basically the team wanted me to pull uh, with Emirates and Israel there, and uh, just kept the breakaway's lead at around you know eight minutes and. You know, for those climbers with uh, three three big climbs to come, that's nothing for uh, them to take uh, big chunks of time out on on the actual climbs. So yeah, on the, on the flat into the lead out of those, I was uh, riding on the front with uh, <coughs> two other guys, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you just you just kind of riding on the front, you're doing uh, decent tempo, and uh, just just one thought is. When you pass through you know, a few villages that are quite technical, you know, a few left and right, a few fast turns and then a roundabout, you're quite glad that you're at the front of the bunch because if you're sitting last man or anyone further than 50% back in the peloton, there's this massive elastic band effect and they'll be sprinting out of those corners with the peloton in one big line. So, you know, when you're on the front taking and choosing and picking your line through the the corners and out of the roundabouts and just keeping a nice, smooth effort, it's kind of nice to know that uh, not everyone's just getting a free ride behind, you know. <laughs> There's a few people uh, sprinting maybe 20, 30 seconds later. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, obviously, you know, the races and things like that, I'm I'm sometimes those guys as well and uh, you're thinking why the bloody hell are they riding so fast on the front or why are they riding so fast now uh but yeah that's that's just how it is and that's just that elastic band effect it, uh yeah it's, uh, it's a it's a it's a, it's a tough one sometimes but yeah i mean today yeah rode into the bottom of the climb and phew, i kind of got a bit scared Obviously, I've, I've been on riding on the front for, I don't know, an hour and a half or so, and then uh, you go into the bottom of the climb, and then I've got three big climbs to get over. I think it's almost 3,000 metres of climbing in the last 60k of today's stage. So, uh, yeah, I, I was a bit, like, a bit nervous. I was hitting the first climb, everyone's going full gas, and I'm just like, when's the Gruppetto going to form? Uh, looking around trying to spot some sprinters come on guys stop trying to stay with the climbers form a groupetto and the first 5k that first climb i was like suffering i was thinking oh my god gonna be going back through the cars here and not even a groupetto's formed yet but anyway i, I stuck at it and uh and then yeah a, a, group, a small group formed and uh, i ended up with uh cav the quick step boys and a few others and uh, yeah it was it was nice riding in that group i mean it's by no means easy you know still got to make a time cut at the end of the day and you've still got to ride a decent pace on the climbs and just the support on the side of roads for cav you know people cheering him on saying for paris and just with him having the green jersey and cheering him on to make the time cut for the day uh yeah that's great to see and um and yeah obviously Got home safe and sound. Uh team wise, Nairo. Uh, he gained a couple of points, but yeah, I don't think <laughs> he was feeling good and then coming into the last climb. Uh, yeah, I don't think um best of best of legs today. But uh there's always tomorrow. Same sort of plan tomorrow. Uh, you know, he's well, tomorrow's the last day if he wants to get the KOM jersey, you know. Uh Yeah, tomorrow's the last day to do so. So uh, let's see how that goes. There we go, stage 19 finished. After yesterday's stage, uh, the last one in the mountains, I can remember cresting the Tourmalet, catching a glimpse of the Champs-Élysées out there in the distance, could see it. All I had to do was descend down the Tourmalet and then go up the final mountain of the Tour de France. So uh, so yeah, yesterday's stage obviously didn't quite go to plan with uh Quintana getting the KOM jersey. I mean Podjica just blew the blew the whole competition apart and you know he's uh he's uh taken the KOM jersey probably without even meaning to, so yeah, it's pretty crazy. And then uh yeah today's stage looks like a sprint stage on paper, maybe a break day. And uh, we spoke before the stage start and just said, oh, you know, watch watch uh, who's trying to jump in the break today and uh, take it from there basically and see if it's gonna be a breakaway day or a sprint day. And uh, there was a crash like 4K into the stage and I, uh, I came to a stop, dodged the crash. And then the worst thing is when you dodge a crash is getting hit from behind you just you just bracing anyway got kind of well i didn't really get hit but like two wheels kind of locked into my bike from behind and they both tumbled sideways and then that forced me to tumble sideways onto some grass if you look at the crash you just <laughs> looks like i just kind of like pathetically fall off my bike but i kind of like lost balance in a way but yeah i just landed on some grass wouldn't even call it a crash i'd just call it a bit of a lay down uh, and then, yeah, get back to the bunch and the brakes kind of already formed and the road's kind of blocked and yeah, six guy have gone up the road. So, a bit, uh, bit gutted about that, but um, but then uh, things kicked off again, like 100K into the stage. And, you know, there's big groups like trying to go and attack. And I just kind of thought at first, oh, you know, it's just going to be like 10K and people are jumping around and it will settle down again. But then it kind of kept on going on and on. So then I moved up to the front of the bunch, started to uh, keep an eye on things. And then uh, I was like, oh, you know, surely nothing's going to go away today. Like uh, it's going to be a sprint. And then before you know it, we go into this little town, left, right, left, right, narrow roads, come out of the town, boom, group of 20 guys gone up the road. Oh, great. And uh, luckily we had uh, Ellie there from our team. So he was uh, covered. We had um, 33 per... Thirty-three point three 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 percent of our team there. Um, so yeah, happy days. And um, and then yeah, there was a big chase behind, and it's just kind of that moment the I think the breakaway got about a minute, came down ten seconds, fifty seconds, forty, and then the bunch got them into within twenty seconds. And it's at that point it either comes back or the elastic snaps and then it goes back out again. And yeah, the elastic snaps and went back out again and those guys went and played for the uh, the stage victory today so uh, then it was just kind of a bit of a bit of a bit of a cruisy ride back back to the finish before tomorrow's uh, TT let's see uh, let's see how that goes in the final stage
0: the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science
1: thank you to science in sport for supporting us through yet another Tour de France. We're incredibly grateful to them for their support. And we were running a competition over the course of the tour, asking you, the listeners, to predict the winner of each Sunday stage in the Super Sunday Science and Sport competition. I mean, really uncomfortable with this, asking people to speculate guess really, just guesswork, but there were a lot of people who guessed correctly all four Sundays, and uh, the prizes will be winging their way to our four winners, the winner of the final stage on the Champs-Elysees was of course Wout van Aert, and Ewan Rennie is the winner of the energy bundle from Science and Sport, so that will be on its way shortly, and if you want to get 25% off all of Science in Sport's products at the website scienceinsport.com, the code is Daniel? 25
2: Five CP25 20, oh,
1: shambles. Absolute SIS CP25. The listeners know this. The listeners know this. It's been a long time, yes, indeed. Well, in this final part, let's uh, talk about Team Ineos first, and then Mark Cavendish. I mean, Team Ineos ended up on the podium with Richard Carapaz, not the most convincing Richard Carapaz that we've seen in Grand Tours, really. Um, but you know, by any measure, a place on the podium is a decent result the absence of a stage win uh, probably less uh, less so but a funny tour for team Ineos i mean on paper um, at the start it looked like it was absolutely packed with you know GC power people to ride hard in the mountains which they did do to be fair to them they did ride very hard on some of the mountain stages um, to sort of shuffle Carapaz up the overall standings but my impression at the end was that really there's perhaps a, a changing of the guard due at Team Ineos in terms of of the riders and that other teams have talent-spotted younger riders much more effectively. You know, they. I don't want to use a football analogy, but as it's just the two of us, Daniel and Richard's not here to police this mention, it feels like sort of a late-era Jose Mourinho team where the checkbook wins over the youth development policy. And, uh, you know, Ineos has had... Um, you know more resources than many teams perhaps all teams in terms of being able to offer uh, you know significant salaries but there's almost a sort of you know the completing of the circle with rehiring Richie Port. not saying that that wasn't a, a, a good signing he had finished on the podium in last year's tour which of course was only last September but I don't know they just looked a little bit like uh, like like some of the legs that perhaps gone you know riders over the summit and on on their way down and uh, the whole team needs a, a little bit of a shake-up and then of course you remember well it's only two months ago that Egan Bernal won the Giro so they're not a spent force by any means. They've also means, had a brilliant I, I mean they've had a fantastic yeah, they season. Have. But, but, the, but the one thing about the Tour was there was really an absence of this kind of uh, rip-up-the-rule-book racing strategy that Dave Brousford was talking about back in January I think we all kind of raised our eyebrows a bit at that um when when he talked about you know racing you know less predictably more aggressively when it came down to it really they rode like a team that had uh, the, the yellow jersey a lot of the time um and the criticism that they were doing UAE's work for them at key points in the race I think does have some validity having said that they did um, they did shake a few people down the GC in order to move Carapaz up, and and they got him onto the podium at the end. But it wasn't the sort of dynamic swashbuckling um, stuff that we saw from you know uh, even Jumbo-Visma, you know, who who obviously have got world class riders, um, but reduced down to four, you know, they were on they were down to the sort of bare bones really by the end. Um, but I don't know what what did you make of Ineos's uh, tour overall?
2: I mean, I think it's easy to be hypercritical of the way they rode just because they didn't win and of Carapaz as well. I think Carapaz rode a, a really good race and I think he's he's really saved their tour. He saved their tour last year and he saved their tour this year. Um, but I think we've probably seen his high watermark. I think we know how good Carapaz is. We know that he's very consistent. He's very reliable, but he's probably not good enough um, at the moment. I talked about Pog proofing grand tour state grand tour roots i mean the only way to pog proof a grand tour route in such a way that it would favor carapaz would be perhaps i don't know stays the whole thing in maybe central africa um just you know and and bank on the fact that th- this idea that pog is not very good in the in extreme heat and Carapaz seems to do quite well in extreme heat. Uh, maybe Carapaz, the higher it gets, so you know, over 2,000, 2,500 metres maybe be there. Um, he starts to eat into Pogachar's advantage a little bit, but I, don't, I just don't think he's quite good enough um, to beat Pogacar, particularly if you're going to throw in 30, 40-kilometre time trials, um, which was the case in this year's tour. But um, I agree with you to a certain extent on a the, the change of the guard, I think, in the tour team in particular the I, I would i would maybe suggest that again nico uh, Nicolas portal has still not been adequately replaced um the late Nicolas portal um i think that they they need a, perhaps a firmer hand not least because i see that there are two cultures in that team that um have created a bit of a bifurcation in that team between the the, the sort of stalwarts, the British the English-speaking stalwarts, and this um, uh, Latin American um, block now, or a, a Spanish-speaking block, which has now been created. And I, I believe that there, you know there have been moments when c- communication has been a bit of an issue, including during the Tour de France. And I think you know they need a, a strong um, leader to to pull those different strands together. Um, in the form of a direct sportif um but in terms of the talent identification i would also agree with you on, on that front um it talks about the likelihood of a, a new star another new star maybe someone even superior to Pogacar emerging well the, the hot tip to be that that rider is is Spanish rider Juan Ayuso, who well about to make his professional debut for UAE for Pogacar's team, um, and he'd be most people's bet um, if there is anyone in the next couple of years who's going to emerge to challenge Pogacar. On the other hand, you know maybe Tom Pidcock is going to be the guy, um, and maybe you know there are a lot of hopes resting on his shoulders now, and he's the guy that Ineos will look to build their tour challenge around in the next few years
1: well I was going to alienate half the listeners by saying once Tom Picot's finished playing around on his mountain bike perhaps he'll do some proper cycling but I mean I don't even believe that so I'm just saying it to be uh, deliberately provocative but yeah it's interesting isn't it it's like uh, you look at the strength in depth that that Ineos has and it's something that well uh, Richard says but I think we probably all said at times is that you can have the you can have a strong team of strong riders who can really set a searing pace but if, if you haven't got the fastest climber the best rider in the race all you're really doing is playing into the hands of, of that rider because Pogachar, when he was put under and I'm doing air quotes here in inverted commas pressure by Ineos he was just sitting in in the armchair seat yes it did on occasion um, you know, put the UAE team under a bit of pressure and they lost riders and 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 left him isolated to a degree. But <laughs> the the trend was that Pogachar was perfectly capable of isolating himself by just going off the front on his own. I mean the the stage to Le Grand where he just rode past the remnants of the break, gaining time. Um the problem there was that there was no coherent chase because everybody else was was shelled. There was nothing to fight back with. It was just man against man, and uh, more or less. And uh, so I perhaps feel a little bit harsh on Carapaz because you know his his uh, Grand Tour record is absolutely excellent. He's won the Giro. He's been fourth in the Giro. He's been on the podium at the Vuelta and on the podium um, at the Tour now. But um, just hasn't got that last little last little bit the last little ingredient needed which is the ability to drop um riders like carapaz and vingergort when the 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 mountains are at their highest and steepest you know even though that is the terrain where he's supposed to come into his own
2: yeah the the last two things i'd say lionel about tactics is um again the the sort of inability or the, the slowness to adopt embrace and thrive with a plan B was evident again. Um, I think that was the case last year. They finally got it right with uh, Kwiatkowski and Carapaz going away for that fantastic stage win towards the end of last year's tour. But um, the, the plan B took a while to activate in 2020 and it did again this year. There were riders in the team like Dylan Van Barla who had fantastic legs Um, in the last week and probably should have been unshackled quite early in the race to go for a stage win and there were too many well there were quite a few breaks with no Ineos riders in them Um, again because they were still sort of tethered to Carapaz and his GC challenge I think that's a problem the other thing is if you go in if you go into the race and I think that you know they were pretty explicit about the fact their best chance their real weapon in this tour was the multiple leaders the four options that they had with Teo Gegenhardt Richie Port, Carapaz, and Geraint Thomas, and then three of them lose significant time in the first stage. And you know we can talk about luck and and crashes and how you know they, they were they were very unfortunate on that day. But it's a bit like going into a football match. Again, to use a football analogy because the Buffalo is not here and saying, look, our priority is not conceding a goal. We're going to play with five at the back, two defensive midfielders and then being three goals, three nil down after 10 minutes. It's, you know, if, you, if you're if you the team manager and you're sitting on the bus and they all, you know, they come in that day, you're sort of looking at everyone and saying, well, lads, you know, what, what the hell happened? And, and that scuppered them, um, didn't it? They were, after that, they had sort of... Um, two arms cut off And another one tied behind their back um, They were really There was nowhere really to go for them From there If you know, you assumed And as, as it proved to be the case That Pogaccio was the strongest individual
1: Just a very brief word on Dave Browser As well the team principal Because there was a story by our colleague Jeremy Whittle in The Guardian In which Browser talked openly About his health issues He's obviously um, had cancer in the last few years And uh, Has had a heart operation as well. And during my very brief stint at the tour, I actually had quite a a long and detailed conversation with Brailsford about this, which at the time I thought was, um, you know, it was deeply personal and uh, it felt like a sort of, you know, an off the record chat. And it wasn't something that I mentioned in the podcast while I was out in France probably makes me a terrible journalist. He was giving me quite a, a story worthy of uh, that, you know, the, the, a, a decent space in the guardian. And I, 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 didn't talk about it, but, um, it was, uh, it was a sort of a, a sense of vulnerability, um, that I picked up from Brailsford that, you, you know, we don't really see. I mean, he was talking about just the strain of, of, of running that team, um, for so long, you know, the, the, the the storms that he has ridden through. I'm not going to sort of go through the rights and wrongs of that again now. But you know, Wiggins, Froome, um, the allegations about uh, the culture at British Cycling while he was running the show there. But he has been in that position of responsibility for a very long time now. Um, We're going back really to uh, before the 2004 Olympic Games when he was became the top man in british cycling he's been running team sky now team Ineos from the start we do know we've noticed that he does seem to spend a lot more of his time riding his bike these days that than uh, you know uh, you know sitting in the bus watching all of the stages um I, I just wonder and i don't want to i don't want to be unfair about it but you know um health scares of any kind do cause a sort of uh, you know reevaluation evaluation of what is important and what your priorities are and whilst he said you know I'm still committed totally committed to the team and helping everybody achieve the best that they can it's the same thing you know the Alex Ferguson effect of of going on so long you know how has has, has his voice run out of steam a little bit I don't, I don't know it's it's an interesting question and I certainly don't want to sort of um, go delve, delve too deeply into speculation there but it does feel like a transitional period for Ineos, and um, you know it, their team may need to look quite different before they can the, the, challenge the likes of Pogacar at, the, team, at also, the Tour.
2: They also mustn't throw the baby out of the bathwater. I mean, if there is if there is a one clearly superior rider in the peloton and he's on a long-term contract with one team, which is the case with Pogacar and UAE, that does not mean that you can't that it's impossible and it will be impossible to win the Tour de France over the next few years. I mean, I had a, I had a couple of chats at the tour with Thierry Gouvenu, the Tour de France route direct, um, route designer, route master. And we talked about the difficulty the tour is having now in plotting routes because, and this comes back to what happened on stage three in Pontivy, how much road furniture there is because basically towns are trying to make their, um, their urban areas um, safer and safer for, well, for traffic, but also for bikes. And there's more and more road furniture going in. And, you know, Thierry now has to consider... 2,000 obstacles or potentially difficult um, points on a potential tour route as opposed to 100, you know, 15 years ago. And, you know, this is one reason why crashes are more and more likely. And, you know, we've just lauded Pogacar and the way he moves around the peloton and we say it never looks as though he's going to crash. But but the likelihood of him going through, sailing through the next six or seven tours um, incident-free is quite a remote one. And... You know, if you've got the second best rider in the world in the tour field and, you know, this year well, it wasn't Carapaz, but he was, you know, he was very close to the second best rider, um, Vingegaard, Then you've got a real chance of winning the tour. So um, I think it would probably be a mistake to assume that they have to tear up all of their plans and their roster and do something completely different. Um, you know, there are a lot of teams with designs on the yellow jersey in the Tour de France who are going to be frustrated if Pogacar remains at the level he is. And, and all you can do is is get as close to him as possible.
1: Well, without our road captain and director sportif Richard Moore, it feels like we're, um, you know, we're, we've gone through the finish line and we're just carrying on riding back to the hotel the length of this podcast. But uh, I suppose there are three weeks of racing to sum up and uh, haven't heard your thoughts on uh, any of it on the podcast Daniels but uh, one big story that uh, we've saved till last Mark Cavendish and his his uh, four stage wins and his bid to overtake Eddie Merckx's record of 34 Tour de France stages. Uh, I made a kilometre zero on this very subject uh, which uh, went out on the final Friday of the tour it was really a sort of meandering journey through my own interactions with Cavendish over the years um, quite enjoyed writing it and uh, just reminding myself of stuff that I'd completely forgotten about Cavendish and just the things that come through from his early years was that single-minded uh, determination and uh, you know the, the 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 way that he would almost uh, create an issue in his own mind to to sort of self-generate some fuel for the fire and it felt a little bit like that was back at this tour although it was a it was a mellow cavendish compared to Um, you know, his his absolute peak, wasn't it? Um, You know, there was the incident that made it onto social media where he seemed to give his mechanic a pretty hard time about the bike, something that he uh, later tried to clear up on social media. Um, But he came just short on the Champs-Élysées. Perhaps the team ran out of legs a little bit on the run-in, allowed... Uh, Jumbo Visma and Wout van Aert in particular to get into the A1 position and the door closed on him. Um, There was a moment where he could have gone but it was probably too far from the line and uh, ends the tour tied on 34 stage wins with Eddie Merckx. I mean, what did you make of it all, Daniel?
2: Yeah, well, on Sunday, I think that was the first bad decision. He made uh, one bad decision, one mistake and it was the first real mistake he'd made in the whole tour and that was to leave morco's wheel and if you watch where michael morco ends up with about 200 meters to go um i.e. long after cavendish has left his wheel well morco was in the perfect position and you know with open road ahead of him and even w- without you know being able to sprint cavendish ended up ended up third so i think that was a that was a a great opportunity missed unfortunately and um just going back a lot of people talked about stage 19 as well and the opportunity that may have been missed there one thing occurred to me Lionel that day um the 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 first sort of 50 kilometers of the race were through what I refer to as Luis Orcaña country Luis Orcaña the well Spanish by birth rider who but who moved to France at a fairly early age and spent most of his life down in that area just sort of south of the Londe, if you know France between the Pyrenees and Bordeaux basically and um Louis Ocagna, of course his whole story his whole career really was defined by the missed opportunity of 1971 and the, the opportunity that he had to beat Eddie Merckx and he was was he seven or eight minutes up on general classification when he crashed in the Pyrenees crashed out in the in that tour and um, yeah Merckx is well sorry Cavendish is perhaps you know the opportunity that he'll rue to surpass Merckx's record um, well, was it spurned on that day? Um, as the peloton sort of made its way through, through that, the, the lawns. Um, but you know, what a fantastic story. It was just such a disorienting feeling to have Cavendish back and, you know, with all of the, the kind of bravado and all of the, the drama that he brings and all of the personality and the storylines that he brings, uh, which we were so accustomed to for, for so many years or for certainly four or five years when it's easy to forget now. In the sort of post-Lance Armstrong world of you know, 2008 to 2012, okay, Armstrong came back in 2009, but um, Cavendish was the biggest, he was always the biggest show in town um, in professional cycling, certainly from a, an, an Anglo-Saxon perspective, but I think from an international perspective, he he had the most charisma. Uh, as I say, there was always the most drama ar- around Cavendish, and it was just like being back um, in that, era um which has, as i say was was quite disorienting but but you know fabulous it was this this really kind of self-indulgent for it felt for us nostalgia trip and um and just
1: and, and one that he was kind of aware of as well i mean mimicking the celebrations i thought was yeah. just you know it, i mean it really sort of pulled at my kind of uh, nostalgia um driven heartstrings really that not not because i was um you know wowed by the fact that he was winning again because i mean if you think back you know i I'd, I'd pretty much written him off and and thought this was absolutely beyond um possible and i think uh, i think we all did just a yeah but the res, the the kind of the the respect for the tour and just the sort of this he's a storyteller isn't he Cavendish? that is um you know he's always created stories and he's aware of uh, the the history not just of of his own career but the tour itself and um, I think there's you know the, the romantic in me says that tying on 34 stages is, is the the right result Patrick Lefevre said uh, at the very end of our kilometre zero if he were to win number 35 on the Champs Elysees in the green jersey that would be the moment to exit out of the big door as he said rather than leave the sport through the small door just very quickly Daniel do you think there'll be another chapter another opportunity Um, for Cavendish to get that 35th win
2: Um, I don't know Um, I I thought this what happened at this year's tour was improbable or would you know a few months ago I would have thought it was improbable nigh on impossible so I wouldn't rule anything out I just wonder how negotiations will go now with Lefebvre Cavendish is obviously desperate to stay there but in a way, Lefebvre might think that he needs Cavendish less than Cavendish needs him. So that puts him in a, a position of, of great strength. On the other hand, uh, you know, De Quicks quicks have had this great tradition of sprinters, um, this great sort of bloodline of sprinters that have moved, you know, they've moved seamlessly from one to the next. Who is it going to be if it's not Cav next year? Because Jakobsen, although we, we hope... Um, What's his, Fabio. We hope Fabio Jakobsen will will come back to the level he was at before his terrible crashing Tour of Poland last year. But um, it might take him a bit longer. He might not be ready for that next year. The tour. Um, Tim Malia has another year, although he's been linked with De Koenig Quick Step. He has a, another year on his contract with Al- alpecin Phoenix. So um, Cavendish might still be the the best bet for De Koenig and the, the 2022. Tour, but there's going to be more competition. Ewan wasn't there for the majority mm. of the tour this year. Sam Bennett will probably be there for someone for Bora, we think, next year. So yeah, it will yeah. it, Vivi- be tough.
1: Viviani and so on. I mean, you know, there's enough people that that, that change the nature of the sprints, isn't there? That's a, um, that's the thing. But you can only beat who's on the start line with you. Um, and and uh, the fact that Ewan crashed out and that the sprinting field was was thinner. Um, you know, perhaps if it had been full, you know, Wout van Aert wouldn't have been uh, up mixing it as as well as he did on the final day um but um yeah it was uh, it was certainly one of the stories of the tour we we should probably wrap it up there daniel i'm, I'm uh you know i'm, I'm conscious that the uh, people have just listened to three weeks of, of tour de france coverage and and the cycling it just goes on doesn't it it's incredible Can we now have the olympic, olympic games well i i mean the the thing about the olympic games is it's it's almost wild card cycling isn't it we don't know who who's come out of the tour well it would be speculative uh,
2: podcasting about oh, wild card cycling
1: it really would be i mean it's it's basically sort of uh, you know roulette wheel stuff i mean anyone could win it's going to be a really hard race so it's uh it's based around mount fuji which is the i think i'm right in saying the highest uh, point in japan so it's going to be a, there's going to be a lot of climbing um small teams of course you know and then there's the added factor of of covid as well and whether um there are any issues for any of the riders coming into close contact you know anyone could get pinged on the morning it's like the 90s again or the or the the, the 2000s um you know riders could get pinged at the last minute and find that they they're not on the start line i mean let's hope not but, um, yeah, it's an unusual one. It's, it's even more of a, a wild card than the World Road Race Championships, I think, the Olympics. But that doesn't make it any less watchable. In fact, I think it makes it, it makes it more watchable. We'll find out who takes over the crown from Golden Greg and Golden Anna over the weekend. And we'll talk about that in next week's podcast, which uh, may or may not have Richard Morkoff back uh leading us out we'll have to see um we'll have to see how fed up he gets of his holiday i guess (laughs) in until then daniel thank you very much good to speak to you again about cycling i enjoyed it